In this episode of 9-2-I Talks, Ariel Foxman interviews Academy Award-nominated writer and director of Fox Searchlight's Jojo Rabbit, Taika Waititi, and the film's producer, Karthu Neal, about their brilliant and darkly hilarious World War II satire. Waititi and Neil discussed the film's nomination for a Best Picture Academy Award, the joys of making anti-Nazi comedy, stories from behind the scenes, and much more. The conversation was recorded on January 30th, 2020, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us here tonight. Uh, we've started our conversation actually backstage, and we've got a lot that we want to cover. So I'm going to just jump right in. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we would all attest that the movie is inc incredibly original. Um, probably something we've never seen before. But I want to acknowledge Not the... Not always a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing in this case. Ah, uh, good. I want to acknowledge the source material that the movie is based on. This 2004 book called Caging Skies, also created by a New Zealander. Can you talk a little bit about how you came across this material and how you decided to option it and change it as drastically as you did. Yeah, uh, firstly, she's a Belgian woman. Um, she, she sort of comes from closer to, to the source. She moved to New Zealand and is now a New Zealander. Okay, she's a New Zealander. <laughs> um, you were right. I tried to correct you. Thank you. I got corrected. Um, so yeah, the, so this book is very different to the film. Um, so when you think about adaptation, it really, that's quite an appropriate term. Um, it's not a very funny book. It's quite dark. Um, and there's no imaginary friend in the, f in, in the book. Um, my mother was reading the book. She introduced me to the book in 2010. And at that time, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. Uh, I'd made two films. And she just told me about this book. And what she told me was very different to the book, actually. She just told me sort of the bare bones of what it was about, about this young boy indoctrinated into the, into the Hitler Youth who um, gets injured. And while he's convalescing, he discovers a girl living in his attic. And that's kind of where she left it. Um, she told me a bit about the mother and stuff. But it, the book is, is quite different. And, and actually, the book continues past where the film stops. I think we probably deal with about half of the book. Um, so, but I just, I was really attracted to this idea of this kid who, you know, and in, in those days, the way that 10 year olds and the, you know, those young kids were um, educated about Jews was that they were, you know, they were led to believe that they were subhuman, they were monsters, they had horns and tails and they, you know, and all of these, you know, the, these things that, these embellishments that will, Designed to make them to make them believe that they were they were things to be feared, um, and there was something about that that I really that really appealed to me. There was this idea that this kid who was so into this ideology and this 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 way of life, who had like the enemy suddenly living under his roof and that he had to deal with and. Um, so that's really where that came from. At the same time, so it was 2010, it was the 20th anniversary of the Bosnian War. And I, just to kind of refresh my memory on that war, I decided to you know, do some research in it. And um, outside of World War II, it was um, after World War II, it was like the biggest um, incidences of um, war crimes and human atrocities. Um, and it was very televised. And so there was a lot of footage of what children were seeing and what children were experiencing and what was done to children. And at that point, I was really, it really struck me that I'd never considered what children go through or what they see and witness during times of war. And as grown-ups, we like to sort of celebrate ourselves and, you know, with war movies. You know, it's all, war movies are always about soldiers and they were on a mission and they've got to do this and then everything's fine. But um, no one really likes to, to have the conversation about, on either side, what children see us do. And, and you, I think what, in war, you know, adults, you know, I mean, we're already crazy. Um, so, but in war, we turn into lunatics, and the whole world becomes quite absurd. And when children see that, 
um, that's that, that was what I was interested in. And what was the process in terms of taking that material and and twisting it and and making it so irreverent and satirical? Did you know when you read the book and you thought this is going to make a movie, it had to go in that direction, or did you did you let the material take you there? Um, I guess originally I thought I would probably make a more dramatic film than than I than I had, but then I realised I don't know how to make a drama. <laughs> I don't know. This is this is my sixth film, and I guess I was looking at the patterns, and <laughs> I realised, oh, I don't know how to do that. And I respect people now who are able to keep that that tone going all the way through their work and to be able to turn up to work and go, well, just get depressed all day long again. <laughs> um, and I can't do that because I feel like, I didn't start making films until I was 30. So like, I feel, you know, sometimes people, like, I work quite hard and people say, you should take a break, you know, you should, you know, you should, you know, you, you should have a rest. I was on a break for 35 years <laughs> before I started making money and actually had like a window of opportunity where I could make films. So I wanted to like go hard right now and so I want to work. Um, but what I've realised about my work is that I have to infuse it with humour, some way of getting an audience to let their guard down, um, because I think that comedy, as we've seen over the thousands of years, that it's been a very valid art form, and it really irks me that people think that it's not, that they think it's a kind of a, a sub-form of art. But, um, for me, it, it, it opens an audience up, makes you more receptive. When you laugh, you want more, you listen more and you're receptive and that's when it's more effective to deliver a, a message or something more profound. So I realised, okay, I'll just continue with my style and I'll try and ride my sensibility and put the things that I want to see in a film like this. And I want this kid to be seen as a lonely little boy, you know, if you imagine like the kid from Kaz, from, um, um, uh, which is a film, that, who knows Kaz? Ken Loach. Ken Loach, yes. This one person clapped and one person, <laughs> said, one person said the name of the filmmaker. Okay, but you know, all those sorts of films about you know, kids who, who don't have many friends and who, who make friends. E.T. is another classic example. All of these, these are things that I grew up, you know, as a, as a lonely but very good looking kid. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, and, and, and I like films like that about kids who live on the margins or who don't fit in, because I never fit in. And, and I thought, okay, well, he needs some sort of something to, to signify the way that his conscience is pulling him away from this girl, and he's fighting this, this battle between falling in love with the monster in the attic and the thing that he, he, he loves, and that's where the imaginary Hitler came from. One of the things, um, so I'm Carthew, I'm the producer I produced with Taika, and um, oh, okay. well, yeah, hello, remember me? No, I, I had no idea, I didn't know that. Know. Yeah. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. I wondered you. who was the person um, who actually got the movie finished. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, um, that was great about the book is Christine had spent five years researching the, so the topic and had really got into the details, so the, the source material, Taika was able to just completely jump off that with his own style, knowing that that material was really well researched. And, when Taika came to her, one of the things that she said, you know, because people were saying, what, when Taika, as we know his films, why were you okay with him adapting your book, which was very serious? And she said, you know, when she looked at his earlier films, um, she could see that the laughs never come for free, that when you laugh, you know, there's something else happening that, that he's, he's going for. And so that gave her the confidence to know that while the, fi the film was never going to be the same as the book, it would have the heart that the book had. Yeah, if you look at the, my box set, um, <laughs> the first film is a comedy about um, mental illness. Uh, the second film is a comedy about um, child neglect. The third film is a comedy about um, what's autumn. On the surface, about vampires, but it's about immigration and people who live on the margins. Fourth film is about uh, the foster system and um, and abandoned kids and abandoned people. Uh, especially in New Zealand. The fifth film is Thor Ragnarok, which is, um, really delves deep into the plight of uh, space Vikings. <laughs> and, um, 
And I mean, the truth had to be told at some point. <laughs> for too long, for too long, we've brushed over what they go through. And um, I was the only one brave enough to really like, just start to really expose that truth. And then, um, and then the sixth one is this, is this film. So in looking at the box set though, there is this Taika sensibility, right? So there is uh, no laugh that comes for free. So how are you making sure that you've got that balance? Is it, is it in the writing? Is it in the editing? How do you make sure that you're not, it's not too heartfelt and not too dramatic or not too irreverent? How are you giving us that balance so that you know not only is this affecting, but it's appropriate? Well, we come from New Zealand where um, the word sentimentality is a swear word. Um, so when people say, oh, it's so sentimental, that makes, that's, you know you have to change it. Um, but I'm learning more now being here that it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a blend that you can do. But all of the films I've done has always, have always been, there's a, to there's a tonal balance between drama, comedy, I want to break hearts, but I also want you to, to laugh and feel uplifted. Um, and I think that's the, the closest you can get to the human experience. I think every day is a mixture of, of laughter, tears, fury, jealousy, fear. And I think in my films, I kind of want to touch on all of those things at once. I don't think, I don't, I don't know, I don't know many people, I'm sure there are some, who've experienced just comedy their entire life. <laughs> uh, I don't know who they are, uh, but I'm jealous of them. But um, yeah, I, so it's always been like that, and, and it was always like that with the first draft of the script. I wanted it to feel like, you know, hold, like, I don't, but the thing about American films, I'm not picking on America, but, and, and, and you know, not just America, but like, I feel like, I can't say Western films because we're from the south of the world, but there's a certain style of just you have to explain everything to the audience, which I really object to, and I feel audiences are really smart, and all the films that I grew up on, you didn't have everything explained. You made it, you figured out those connections yourself, and, and that's sort of where I've always come from, not, not having to have too much backstory if you want a really like hard-hitting moment, not having to subtly lead up to that for 15 minutes to kind of ease the audience into it. It's okay just to slam them with it like, and so, then turn back to a, to a joke. So let's talk about the way the movie opens, right? So yeah. um, most of us have heard about this movie before we've seen it. We know that this is gonna be something that's a little bit on the edge. I don't know how I'm gonna feel about it. Um, well, think about how I felt writing it. <laughs> but the movie opens, right, you could open the movie anywhere in the story, and it opens with a very assured display of that this is going to be uncomfortable, this is going to be hysterical, this is going to be loud and brash. Uh, why that technique? Why open with um, this is what it's going to be? Why not lead people into it or balance it in a different way? I think for that exact reason. So I would rather people walk out in the first minute than feel like they were tricked for 25 minutes and then walk out even angrier. Like, I, the, the, you know, that's like this story about Tarkovsky with Solaris. And, you know, if you've seen that the first seven or eight minutes is just a car driving along a freeway and there's nothing really happening. And you know, someone asked him about it, and he said, That's, I just did that so that all the idiots would leave early. <laughs> and, um, and you know, so there's, so for me, it's like, you know, it's not that brutal or, or cynical for me, but you know, there was a, originally an idea that, oh, we'll just introduce this Hitler character, and you know, like subtly after 15 minutes or you know, something, and we'll just ease them into it. But it just it didn't seem to work, and it wasn't true to me, and it, wasn't, and it just seemed like a waste of time. A, a, a waste of screen real estate where we could be getting straight into the story. And so we just decided that let's, you know, the script is unapologetic. Let's not be, uh, let's not apologize for what we're trying to do. We know the intention comes from a good place and, you know, and the goal and the journey is leading to a good place. Let's just start off with this energy and start them off seeing Hitler, seeing this little asshole kid, 
and you know and and just throw you into it and then we've got the Beatles with that rally footage and it's sort of like us just saying this is what we're doing <laughs> sorry <laughs> and it's not gonna stop and that's what we're doing and we're gonna continue um, I think it's uh, it's incredible too how quickly it unifies the audience if you're seeing this in a theater well, yeah, I know that everyone in it like even with the first screening I saw for 10 minutes, I was looking around going, am I allowed to laugh? Mm. <laughs> oh, no, everyone experiences that. There's, a, there's this feeling that you have to figure out, do I have permission to enjoy this film? And to move into what has been so conventionally inappropriate. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about that. You said it's unapologetic. Um, I am a child and a grandchild of Holocaust survivors, and I had a very modern Jewish education where if they could if they could insert the Holocaust into a lesson, it was inserted. And if you could see a documentary, you saw the documentary. And if you saw a new film, a new play, whatever it was. Um, and what was, what was very clear was that you could never make light of the Holocaust. You could never, um, you could never cheapen the language around the Holocaust. I remember when uh, Seinfeld had the soup Nazi there was all this conversation in our schools that could you even say the word Nazi and cheapen it in this way? Um, and I'm wondering how do, you, how do you approach this in such an unapologetic way and say, you know what, this storytelling requires levity, it requires satire, it requires parody in this context, in this day and age. How did you get to that, that place where you knew this was gonna be okay because of the end, the end result? I think because people had done it before. You know, I never thought of myself as someone who's like really like pushing the boundaries with, with this film. Like I feel like I've like, you know, there have been people who have busted the doors open and left them swinging and I just came along in 2018 and so like, oh, and me too. Uh, you know, like, so, you know, and, and it's not, it was never, a, a, there's never been any kind of, any feeling of wanting to make light of anything. If anything, what I've been trying to do is take power away from those people. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like in, in movies, they're always, the Nazis are always um, portrayed as something to be feared. And you know, I grew up fearing them because of the, how they were portrayed. And, and at some point, I guess, just, I don't know, I feel like just at some point, I felt like it's okay to pick them apart and pull at the threads of what of, of the ideology and like, and what they stood for and comedy has always for, for me been a very important tool in, in in fighting against bullies and dictators and 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 groupthink and and people who 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 make up rules that make no sense and if enough of, pe enough, enough of them believe in that, then it's harder to make them believe that it makes no sense. So, you know, and there's this, I often talk about this, um, the story about Groucho Marx, and I think I'll get the details, you know, a little off, but like the story about his, I think it was his daughter in the 30s who went with a group of friends to a country club in, in Beverly Hills, and she wasn't allowed in the pool because she was Jewish. So they had no Jews in the pool policy. And instead of reacting you know, how many of us would react, I'm a parent, and I would have, you know, tried to burn the place down. She, I mean, he, you know, in typical Groucho style, wrote a letter and said, well, to be fair, she's only half Jewish, so would you consider letting her into the pool up to her knees? <laughs> and when you, when you use humour to, like, and, you know, just as an observational humour, um, just to, to pick at that stuff, it starts becoming very flimsy and it starts falling apart and even they can sort of see how, how ridiculous it is. And that's really like why I, you know, I try and infuse this film with that stuff. And I do feel like I'm in good company with you know, people who've done great satires before. Um, but it was never a thing, it was, this is very weird for me because like usually I will like have a sort of an inkling of an idea for, for a, a film and I'll usually write the end first and then I'll sort of, touch on the beginning, I'll write a few things in the middle, and then try and glue it all together. But I really felt kind of backed up with this one. My mother, just, my, just a bit of background, my, on my father's side were indigenous New Zealanders, were Māori, 
and um, and on my mother's side, the origins there, the um, Russian Jews who escaped the pogroms in the early um, 1900s, somehow weirdly made it to New Zealand of all places, um, and and so I, I so I come from two cultures that are extremely resilient and um, you know they're survivors and very strong. But I did, this is the first time I've ever written a script where I started on page one and just didn't stop and didn't look back and went all the way through to the end. And I did sort of feel, and I'm not trying to be weird and like, you know, sort of, you know, uh, I just felt very kind of like backed up and supported in a different way. Like I felt, and even when I was doing the film, it's a very hard film to be making whilst you're dressing up in that costume. I feel, you know, I felt, Kind of just, yeah, just supported. In a kind Did you of weird feel like you had permission, given your background, to to tell this story and to tell it in the way that you 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 do? It is. It may not be the first satire, but it's incredibly pioneering in its in its contemporary nature and the colloquialisms and all of it is so new in terms of our seeing World War II and the and the atrocities. And so I'm wondering if, you know, I read that you talked about, you know, I'm a Polynesian Jew playing Hitler, and that in itself has its own... Um, it has its own power, because he would have hated that. Yeah, its own irony and its own sort of perverse satisfaction. Um, but did your upbringing and, your, and your, um, your identity play into your feeling that you were backed up? In, in doing this? A little bit. There was, again, it was just a feeling that I needed to do it um, and I wanted to do it and I think just without having like the permission from anyone else, the fact that my mother was into it, you know, who's like a very intellectual Jewish school teacher who brought me up and was very annoying. Um, <laughs> Used to, when I was, instead, I used, to, I used to beg to be grounded. I used to beg to be sent to my room because what she would do instead was make me analyze William Blake poems and like <laughs> read, <laughs> read, if I'd got in trouble, she'd be like, well, now you're gonna read this really long book. So like, now I've like, got this like, love-hate thing with books. When I see a book, I'm like. <laughs> but I felt like you know, if she knew the intention was right, if she, you know, that, if she was into it and backed me, then I felt like I was okay. Or if like, people who knew my sensibility and, and, and understood the films that I make and where I come from and that I'm not an idiot, you know, then I was okay. Um, I didn't, I felt very uncomfortable. Again, come from New Zealand, you don't like to promote yourself um, at all to a fault. We've, we've become very annoying because we don't, it takes a lot of practice to learn how to fist pump. <laughs> it's over here, it's like you're born. Everyone, everyone like gets born, they come out of the womb. Like, yeah! <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like a learnt thing, we've got to like really educate ourselves on that. Um, but it was never a thing where I felt like, oh, you know what would be good to put on this poster is, don't worry, he's Jewish. Um, <laughs> you know, because that to me seems kind of flaky and like, it's not the point of the film. And it's like, I don't want people to go like, mm, oh, it's going to be okay. You know, like, I feel like the art has got to speak for itself, and uh, yeah, I, it's... Well, with the film so fresh in everyone's mind, I want to ask you um, about a few choices that were made in the movie. One of the things that struck me as so different and um, impactful was the tonality. Not, not that it's a satire, but literally the tonality, the saturation of the colors yeah. in the movie is so different than anything we've ever seen in any of these sort of period pieces. Could you talk a little bit about how you were building the, the story through color? Yeah, well, it was actually a really colorful time. Like, it, like we shot, I mean, originally the idea was that we we're going to shoot in Berlin um, at Studio Babelsberg, which is where you go if you want to make a World War II film. And, um, but it turns out you can only work children for three hours a day on a film set. And, um, <laughs> I know. And so we thought, oh, we'll just go to the Eastern Bloc countries. I don't know. Yeah, be, that'll be easier. Uh, <laughs> not that much better. They've figured it out too. Uh, it's only five hours over there. 
Um, incidentally, you could shoot with children in New Zealand for 10 hours. Um, <laughs> we like to work them hard down there. <laughs> um, but we went there, I mean, like, yeah, we, the, the, all the towns and stuff that we went to were very colourful. Yeah, so when we, where we shot in Prague, um, those towns that you see in the movie, they're about an hour out of um, the city, and they do look a lot like that. We obviously took down um, and replaced all the signage um, and, and made them, you know, restore them back to that period exactly, but they do have all that colour, and, and Ra Vinson, who was a production designer, he then used that to influence his design of the set, which um, half the movie takes place in that house. Um, and so he used the colours from the buildings that, he f that we found on our scout to bring into the house. And also I think part of that was to, to see the world through Jojo's eyes, to see the world as a colourful place at the beginning of the film. He was ecstatic to be who he was and where he is, and then to see that change across the course of the movie. That was part of the choice with the colours. Yeah, and with the costumes and stuff like that, but those are sourced costumes from, from the period, um, from Germany. And I think what, you know, when you see a lot of these films, like Maya's Rubeo, who did the, the wardrobe, you know, she spent a lot of time thinking about this film. And, what, and when we got to Prague, we asked the um, production house there, to see the stuff that they had in the archives from other films they'd made. And they wheeled all the stuff in and everything was brown and gray and super dull and, I, and from the other films. And I get that, you know, that's from films where there's a, there's a real reason to desaturate everything and, you know, and make it gloomy. But I felt like, yes, the thing looking through <coughs> Jojo's eyes, but also in reality, those towns were as colorful as what you see in the film. There was a lot of colour. They were celebrating um, in Germany. There wasn't, you know, they didn't like Hitler didn't get in, and they just went, let's paint everything brown. <laughs> you know, they were. They, they, it was a party for them, and especially, and also with the wardrobe. And at the end of the war, one thing people don't realise is that in the last six months they knew they were losing, and so most people have known that, and have many stories about. I mean, the mothers who were carrying pistols around town, waiting for the Russians to come, and they had pistols to kill themselves and their families and stuff. And, but, so everyone knew that the end was coming, but a lot of them would just dress up in their best clothes, put on all their makeup, um, and they just wanted to go out looking good. And they were also all on drugs. There's a book called Blitzed, I don't know if anyone's read, that's about the drug trade in, in Nazi Germany. They invented meth, which is where the Blitzkrieg came from. It was keeping soldiers up for four days straight as they like, that's how they moved fast. Uh, so everyone was on meth, everyone was on coke and heroin, uh, and they all knew that they were gonna die. So I mean, you imagine the chaos of that place at that time. Uh, and they believed, I mean, even through their eyes, everything was still a party and still a celebration, even as they were going down. Let's talk a little bit about Sam Rockwell's character. Yeah. Captain Klenzendorf, mm -hmm. um, who is compassionate, sort of disillusioned at times, crazy at times. Um, tell us why to include a character like that when the Nazis are so two-dimensionally horrible um, and insane in the movie. You have this character that is also part of the father figure, is also part of the resistance, is also part of the, the sort of hypocrisy of it all, um, but is really nuanced. And as part of the haters, um, what are we supposed to take away from the film about him? Well, the thing I think you're supposed to take away from that is that people had lives before this happened. People had lives, they were, they were people, the other thing is nobody realizes that not every soldier or every um, person who was in the army uh, actually s signed into the party. You had to sign into the party to become a Nazi. You could be a soldier and not agree with them, but you just shut your mouth. So yeah, that's why I like to think that he was partying at the club in Cabaret before it got shut down. And that you know he realized a few years in that he'd made a f terrible mistake and but you know, this, it was complicated because like, you know, a lot of them were patriots and they still like, believed in doing the best thing for Germany and coming out of a depression. They, wanted, they didn't want to go back into a depression, but they also didn't want to be Nazis. And um, 
you know, like it's. So, so with him, you know, I wanted I wanted a, a backstory like that. I wanted everyone to have a life before this thing happened. With Rosie, I wanted her to have a life before this thing happened. Those shoes are chosen specifically. They're called um, spectator shoes, and they originated um, in England through of being the trendy shoe to go and watch cricket in, and then they became a really popular shoe for performers to practice in, and so. And so throughout Europe and so there was like known as like the rehearsal shoe and so you know for her wearing those shoes all the time was like for me was like that's her still holding on to this one thing that she got to do before this all the shit went down and um, you know a thing that brought her happiness and so there's little things like that where it's like there was something else outside because I think in most films it's like well, all Germans were born Nazis, and that's how we're going to see them. And it's easy to watch a movie knowing that. You're like, okay, great, I don't feel anything when they all get killed. Um, but again, it comes down to, for me, human experience, child, the children's experience, and that's really what it's about, like what the children were going through. Um, and also, and it's all parents, like, and especially mothers. Like the film, I've said this before, the film is a... You know, because it, it came essentially from my mother. The film, for me, is a love letter to mothers in general and to single mothers like my mother is and, um, and the sacrifices that they make, not only in just like contemporary times, but in a time when your child is, is being pulled away from you. And parents in those days couldn't, they couldn't uh, interject. They weren't allowed, they, there was no real safe way to try and pull your kid back from what was happening to them. Because the first lesson that you were taught when you went to Hitler Youth is disobey your parents. Whatever they say, don't listen to them. Rebel against them. We are your family. Hitler's your father. Only listen to us. And they were brainwashed from a very, very early age into thinking that. So if parents were to say, this is bullshit, you shouldn't be doing this, they were encouraged to go and tell their supervisors, this is what my mum said, this is what my dad said, and then they would go and take care of the parents. So at the end of the movie, when they leave the house and he's standing on the steps and he says, you know, we've made it. She's clearly survived and maintained her strength and vitality. Where, where is Jojo Rabbit at the end, right? He's lost his parents, he's lost his sister, he's lost this potential love of his life, he's lost this ideology, his friend. He's made it. Um, and he hasn't been completely spoiled by the whole experience, but you know, I was struck by the poem at the end, and I, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about um, where you think Jojo goes after that, um, and what is left of him um, as a as an orphan, really, with no, with nothing. Well, I think it speaks a lot to the resilience of of, of people and of of children. You're late. <laughs> um, and um, <laughs> I think that that should have happened. I asked for her to give those to you 25 minutes ago. Um, the actual questions I wanted you to ask. Uh, but, you know, and it's a film about survival, but the ultimate message at the end of the film is this kid is learning to think for himself and that there is hope. Now, if you do your research, and I'm sure a lot of us know what happened in Germany after, at the end of the war. Um, it was not good for them. And it was not good for kids. And, but I'm not gonna end a film where I've spent so much time trying to encourage people to have hope, and especially in a time like this in 2020 when these patterns are repeating. Because um, I don't wanna be that cynical, and I don't want people to leave the cinema thinking, oh, well, what's the point? Um, so the point of that quote, that real good quote, it goes beyond just what has happened within the film. It goes further, it goes further for each experience. I mean, the wall came up not long after and what those people went through was, you know, was terrible. And the, I think the great thing about humans is we do have this ability to hold on to something and to keep going. and. I think, you know, that's, that's what's great about us um, and to not give in. And so, you know, I think 
in my mind, in my sort of, you know, Disney mind, I like to think that everything was just perfect. It probably wouldn't have been perfect for them, but I like to think that they'd been through enough that they could continue on with some resilience and some strength. And I, I kind of feel there's echoes of Rosie there because, you know, she says, you, you know, dance when you're free. And, um, and that's what they do at the end. And so I think it's, it's like they're free, they're f Elsa is physically free, but also Jojo's mind is free. You know, he's no longer indoctrinated in, into what, those terrible things that he was at the start. And that's, I think, why they're dancing, you know, and, and that freedom can come and go, you know, in the future, possibly for them in an imaginary version of the story that continues for Jojo and Elsa. But that's, it. that's the place I think the film comes to at the end. That's the point, really. I like to think that they together invented the catamaran. <laughs> and, um, they sold that patent and uh, they made question. millions and millions of dollars. And then they went on to, um, to start a whole lot of new businesses. And, um, I'm curious that's fine. Uh, to, given the state of the world today and the not just the, the return and the re-rise of totalitarianism and Nazism, um, but also this sort of like arrogant ignorance and refusal of, refusal of fact. Um, I was just uh, watching a news report during Holocaust Remembrance Day and they were citing a, a study where I think 65 or 66% of millennials. 41% of Americans and 66% of American millennials have never heard of Auschwitz. Don't know about Auschwitz, exactly. And, and which what that means is they've never heard of Treblinka, they've never heard of um, Buchenwald, they've never heard of the most notorious camps, which means they know nothing about the, uh, the Holocaust. Nothing. Um, and if they do know it, 40 something percent, 41 or 42% think it's exaggerated. It's not six million, it's two million. It's mm. the whole thing has yeah. been overwrought. Thank you, internet. And I'm, I'm wondering though, you make this picture, um, there's clear evil and there's clear love and goodness. What, now that it's out in the world, has the response been varied? Has the response been um, so that you could see that this movie is doing different things for different people? Is there a responsibility for it to educate? Is it to be entertaining? Is it to be a warning? Is it, um, what have you seen as the response across the globe from survivors who must be in their 80s and 90s to kids who may or may not know nothing, anything about this? I mean, there's been so many amazing things. You know, let's start with Mel Brooks who came out the other day at a, AFI luncheon we were at with all the other nominees and stuff, it was just giant room. And he went off script and then picked on us and said, <laughs> this is, the film is incredible and it's very important and it's in line with what we were doing and, and everyone needs to see it. And, um, and I leaned over to Carthy and I said, this whole award season can turn to shit. This is great. This is what we, <laughs> this is, this <laughs> is our <laughs> Oscar. Um, because, like the, the original script, there's not a single swear word except for that one moment at the end when he kicks him through the window. And that's just from knowing that, you know, if you have one, more than one F-bomb in your film, you know, it's, it's an R rating. But I wanted to keep it a PG so that kids could see this because I think it's very important. I saw Gallipoli when I was nine years old. And, um, and <laughs> yeah, I know. It was in the, <laughs> it was in the 80s. And I, you know, I thought, oh, there's got to be a happy ending. No, he's running and, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that stuck with me. And that's not a film that I'd think that you know, kids shouldn't see. It's a long film that kids would find hard to watch, but it stuck with me and it stayed with me. And I feel like children need to be challenged artistically and they need to see things that challenge them and, and make them think. And, you know, I would hope that, you know, the, the, so Roman, who's, who plays Jojo, he was 10 when he made the film. And I think that 10 year olds should. And so, and, and Roman. Um... And he educated himself on what happened. I didn't have to teach him. He already knew about World War II. And then before he, before he came for the audition and came to set, he, he did a deep dive into the Holocaust and, you know, and as a 10 year old, it's like, I have to learn about this. Mm. And he, um, one of the things when he finished the movie, because he had this massive experience, four months with us in Prague, and he went, went back to school and no one knew any different. Right. And so when the film came out, he showed the film to a group of his friends in class to sort of show them what he'd been doing. 
and one of the kids came up to him afterwards and said, um, oh wow, that movie was amazing and it's, it's about, um, he asked, Roman asked him, what is it all about? And he said, it's about kids thinking for themselves and learning to think for themselves. And I think that was just such, to, he told us that story and it was such a powerful thing to hear that a 10, you know, 10 or 11 year old kids could get that from this story, get that sort of top line message to not necessarily do everything that you're told if it's crazy, you know. Yeah, and like Archie, who plays Yorkie, the little best friend with the glasses. <laughs> um, so he would, you know, it's like, I'd like to tell the story that sometimes, I mean, he's a very incredible kid. Um, gifted. Gifted. <laughs> he, um, he, so in the big battle scene and stuff, where all the stuff was going on, at one point he, like, he's in camera and he's just like, no. No, it like basically calls cut on like <laughs> very expensive shot, and so I go up to him like Archie, what's happening? What's wrong? And he's like, Tyke, it's awfully loud. <laughs> and I was like, Yes, Archie, those are bombs, <laughs> guns. This is a war scene in the film. You knew this was coming. Yes, I know, but it's very, very loud. And he had earplugs in. You know? Is this strictly necessary? <laughs> and, uh, so, and he was look, eight, maybe, nearly nine. And uh, he said, I mean, it's, it's just, oh, no. and there was this dust in the air. I don't know, is that toxic? Seems very toxic. <laughs> and, uh, and then, but then afterwards, we did a Q&A a few months later, and he, after he'd watched the film, and, and even his perspective was very beautiful. He said, like, oh, he said, yes, I complained about doing that, and I thought that was horrible. He said, but then I realised children actually doing that sent in with real guns told to shoot you know these strangers and you know and he said it would have been louder and more toxic um, and so with, yeah and so having these kids understand that and having like meeting many people who have watched the film who get it and you know most of the critics of, of the film have never seen it um, but having them do it I, I was at a great WGA screening about three weeks ago and someone came out and she said to me, I'd like to talk to you. Uh, my parents um, survived Auschwitz and, um, and I said, okay, I'm ready for this. And she said, and they would have really loved this film. And it was, like, and, and I've had that a few times with people um, and it's, it's not like you're seeking that validation as a thing that you're gonna put on your poster, you know? It, but it's the thing that like, makes me feel like, okay, shit, the effort was worth it because it was, you know, because I had a feeling that's coming, I mean, it's coming from a good place, and there's a feeling that kind of goes along with that, and, and it just, yeah, there's more and more, I mean, the USC Shoah Foundation is now using it as an educational resource um, yeah. for kids, and I think it's so great, not only just, look, nominations and all the stuff is great, my ego can really handle it, you know? <laughs> Feed this thing, but, to know that the film has a bigger life outside of that and will continue, you know, long after I've like forgotten about it, is really special. So I'm going to move to questions from the audience um, that were collected earlier in the evening. Uh, Kate asks, Taika, what character do you most identify within the film?" Um, I would say I most identify with. Uh, with Rosie, with Scarlett's character. Because I feel like that's, I mean, as a parent, I'm a, you know, I, I always want the best for my kids and it wasn't until I became a parent that I realised what my parents did for me and, and you know, they're very privileged, my kids. <laughs> you know, because I came from a very poor background came to America and I was all these things and like one day like we, I was renting a house as I bought the house next door and um, at one point I know at one point my daughter said dad which pool should we swim in today <laughs> <laughs> and, one, and I was like oh my god what's that? And like another time like I was making <laughs> breakfast for them the, my two daughters and and uh, they said we want waffles and then I put gave them waffles and went, actually we don't want waffles I think we want pancakes. And I was like, you guys, like some boys didn't have any breakfast. I didn't even know what a waffle was till I was 32. <laughs> what are you guys doing? And they're like, why? <laughs> and I don't know. They, it seemed to be such a loser, but like, I want to like keep that, even though they're annoying, they're still beautiful and I want to keep that, you know? And so like, I feel like 
you know, I would do that in that situation. I don't think I'd really, uh, you know, everyone likes to think that they'd be brave enough to like stand up in front of a crowd and say, so I'm not sure if that's me, but I would like get with my kids and like shield them as much as possible from the reality of what's going on by entertaining them and playing games and, and, and this, yeah. Uh, we have another question about the film's reception and particularly in Germany. Um, I know that, <laughs> uh, what was the anticipation there about a film like this and what has been the response? Well, I mean, the, I've, I've seen actually quite a, a few, um, a lot of my films are played at the Berlinale in, in Germany and Berlin and they expose their youth to a lot of very challenging films and films about, I mean, all my films, which I never thought of as films that kids would be able to see, that they put it, they show, they show it in, in part of their youth section. And um, so they're very smart and they're very like, they're, they, they get it. Some of the, there were like two or three critics which annoyed me, but, because um, they were just obsessed with like, the authenticity of like, one of them was like, um, you know that, Hitler didn't actually like smoking. Um, <laughs> so did you take that into consideration um, when you made Hitler smoke? And I was like, I don't care about that fact at all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's been well received. They're very pedantic. It has been well received. It has been well received. Know, I mean, they, they don't, you know, they're oh, they, We're taking all their money, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> they're taught not to laugh about this and take, you know, and keep it in their mind and they never want to forget what happened or never repeat it. So I think, so, and they're very educated too, you know, whereas some countries are not as educated about this. This is in their education system and, and very much at the front of the mind. And so I think, but, you know, they've also got problems of the right growing in, in Germany. And so these stories that find other new ways of retelling stories to kind of you know, capture people's imaginations and keep them thinking about it, I think are really important for them as well. Oh, I lived in Berlin for two years in the late 90s. And even then there was a right wing group that got into power. They got into, not into power, but they became recognized as a political party. This was in the late 90s. It was 20 years ago. Yeah. Step over there. Europe, man. Don't go. Uh, someone asked specifically about how you went. Uh, France, you know, talking about the statistic of, like, here. In France, 12% of them don't know about Auschwitz or the Holocaust. They live next door. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> to shift topic, how were the kids cast? Um, Craigslist. Craigslist. <laughs> Max. Um, <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> uh, did, did you know of these actors before? Was this, how, how did you find these the kids? Yeah. No, neither of them have acted before. Uh, so we, we were on a search. We searched up and down the, um, out of the UK. We we're looking for, for, for our Jojo and Yorkie. Uh, and we think we, Taika likes to work with kids who um, haven't acted before, who are sort of a much, come much to it much fresher and don't have any sort of pretense that they're bringing to, to the job of acting. And so we were, we were searching up and down in schools, um, using a casting agent going out to schools, and we couldn't find anyone. We then started looking in Germany for English speakers and then Canada and America. We decided to go back to New Zealand and then as we were, you know, this was as we were in pre-production leading into the shoot and it was only four weeks prior to starting to film that we found Roman uh, and he was actually in, the, in LA with his dad was working there which is why we'd missed him in our scouting and so it was a, it was a, a late decision but, uh, and, and, if, and even though he did an amazing audition, we'd seen two tapes of him and then we met him in person and decided, I think, a couple of days later, and you know, that's a massive leap of faith to, to plant, you know, base a whole movie's success on a 10-year-old kid. Mm. Um, so that was, that was um, something that, you know, Taika has done before, and so that gives you comfort, and the way that Taika works with kids is make sure that it's a really fun environment, and it's, not, it's very playful, so it doesn't hopefully feel too much like, like work. So there is that confidence, but it is nerve-wracking, obviously, um, having kids as the center of a movie like this. Yeah, here's the thing with kids, um, kid actors. They're way better than grown-up actors. 
because grown-up grown actors come to, to come to work and they're just like cluttered with actor think. And they're just like, mm, you know, mm, I was thinking overnight and I thought my, my character would do this scene hanging from that chandelier there. <laughs> uh, he's wearing a cowboy hat and uh, nothing else. Uh, and it stems back from when his, uh, his childhood, uh, when, and it just goes on and you're wasting half a day talking about the character. Kids, all they want is money and to not go to school. And <laughs> that's it. They don't care really what it's about, they, especially at 10. They're just like, these lines? I have to say these? Done. And then they do it. But when I cast kids, I cast them as close to the character that I've written as possible, so they don't have to act at all. They just, you know, you are, you are that character. <laughs> say these lines. <coughs> and that's... That's the secret. And in this case, in this case, Roman is like the Jojo you see at the end of the film. He's a love, you know, lovable, sweet, open-minded kid. And the job Taika had was to kind of place that indoctrination on that character. And that's where, where yeah, the challenge was. You know, strip that away throughout the film. So the kid on the street at the end is literally that is just Roman being Roman, dancing and caring about another human. Last question is, what's next? This experience, uh, doing something so well received, that has six nominations for the Academy Awards. Does this give you ideas, permission, a new sense of courage to create or do something even bolder? Um, or do you want to do something completely in a different direction? Well, I thought this was going to be a career ender. So, <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. So I'm trying, I'm going back to the drawing board and how I do that. Um, I just finished shooting a film with Michael Fassbender in Hawaii. Um, I thought, here's the best way to follow up a film that I think is very important for humanity. I'm going to do a sports film. And um, I did a, I'm doing a film about soccer, um, which is a sport I know nothing about and all care about. And um, <laughs> so, and I went in and I came out of that shoot, finished shooting, I came out knowing less. <laughs> Anyway, he's in it, and it's going to be really fun and uplifting, and it's going to be great. And it's it's, Poly it's basically it's just it's Polynesian. It's uh, I want to put Polynesians on film, and it's the brownest film I've ever made. <laughs> I just made the whitest film I've ever made. No, I made the brownest film I've ever made. But um, yeah, it's just I want to do. Whenever I choose a project, it's got to be something that makes me feel very uncomfortable and nervous for what for for the future. Um, and let's, yeah, I'm doing that, and then I'm doing another Thor film uh, later in the year. On that note, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92Y.org archives.